Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Susan Tucker, curator of books and records at the Newcomb Center for Research on Women at Tulane University. This is the third Frankie lecture in this semester's series, History of Food and Cuisine. Her talk is entitled, Inscribing Food, Talking Life, New Orleans Past. Um, tonight I'm going to discuss the inscription of New Orleans food, literally who wrote it and why. And I'm going to skirt through an overall history of the city in food, and, uh, and then I'm going to concentrate especially on the late 19th and early 20th century cookbooks and the great public markets of the city. These, the cookbooks and the markets, are two phenomena that I will argue created an appeasement between various cultures in the city, created a common cuisine, most often called Creole. Can you hear me just fine? Okay. From 1718, the founding of New Orleans, we have had a complex association with food created around the geographical location of the city and the continuing and differing waves of immigrants who settled there, establishing the town in a time of food scarcity. The first French colonizers found a sparsely populated area where Native Americans created their lives around the harvesting of corn and other vegetables and spices, hunting and fishing. The French advertised this place, that is, wrote home about it, as one of riches, though this was clearly not always true. When John Law sought to protect this French investment in the New World in 1720, one of his first acts was to pursue and influence some German colonists to come to Louisiana. These 2,000 people settled above New Orleans in present-day St. James and St. Charles parishes, known today still as the German coast. This settlement grew quickly. As every Louisiana schoolchild still learns, these Germans made possible Oh, sorry. These Germans made possible the survival of the French city. The investors and those officials watching the growth of the city were not the only ones writing about New Orleans food. The various priests and nuns who came to assist also left a written legacy. As an Ursuline named Sister Madeline wrote to her father in 1727, bread is made of corn rather than wheat. We eat meat, fish, wild peas, and beans, and many fruits and vegetables, such as bananas, which are the most excellent of all fruits, watermelons, sweet potatoes, figs, pecans, and a thousand other fruits of which I did not know. We live on buffalo, deer, wild geese, turkeys, rabbits, chickens, ducks, pheasants, partridge, quail, and other fowl and game. The rivers here are full of monstrous fish, especially flounders, which are excellent fish, and a number of others which I did not know in France. There is a wild grape, larger than the French grape, but it is never eaten in a bunch, but served in a plate like a plum. That which is cheap and most common is rice with milk and hominy, which is made of Indian corn, pounded into a martyr and then boiled with water, and served with butter and gravy. The people of Louisiana find this very good. So she was trying to reassure her father. There were not many writers willing to tell of shortcomings, but naturalists and journalists 
Antoine Lepage Dupraz in the 1750s was willing to tell of some differences. As he noted, they eat their rice as they do in France, but boiled much thicker and with much less cookery, although it is not inferior in goodness to ours. They make bread that is very white and of good relish, but they have tried in vain to make any that will soak in soup. What the writers advertising the place and the colonists writing home did not often say was how much they depended upon the Native Americans and soon after the arrival of the Africans in 1721 as slaves. The Native Americans taught the colonists how to survive by drying fruit, fish, and meat and how to make their meals more palatable by thickening soup with filet made from sassafras and by, baking, and by making hominy and grits from corn. The Africans brought knowledge of rice cultivation. Yet again, as every Louisiana child is told in connection with this, it, there was always a fear of starvation. By the 1760s, when the Spanish took over, the records show a need for adjustment. Town council members, those in the cabildo, ordered and oversaw the construction of an open-air warehouse where they would inspect flour shipments post-weekly bread prices that were fixed by law, and prosecute sellers who cheated customers. As their notes attest in translation, in view of the great abuses committed in the sale of provisions, which are exposed to the elements, not being covered, and particularly their quality, the necessity for, building, for a building to transact the sales of provisions would result in untold good to the public. It was determined to build a wooden warehouse, 60 feet long by 22 feet in width, roofed with shingles. The last 40 years of the 1700s then showed continuing improvement in the availability of food. Yet the Spanish were not able to completely dispel shortages. The last French colonial prefect who arrived for just a year to oversee the transfer from Spain back to France and then to the United States. One Pierre Clément de Lossat described a very homely scene from 1803 that he experienced in New Orleans. As he wrote, provisions were lacking in the market and were had only at prohibitive prices. We imitated the colonists. Almost like farmers ourselves, we drew upon our own resources, and our poultry yard came alive with hens, roosters, chicks, turkeys and domesticated ones raised in our aviary or wild ones hunted in the woods. Domestic and wild geese, peacocks, bustards, ducks, sheep, deer, and raccoons. We set up a useful menagerie that was prolific, made a pretty sight, and provided amusements below our galleries. In contrast to the Spanish belief in their monitoring of the butchers, Lausat would only buy meat directly from the farmer. Poultry sold in the market he considered disgusting, and vegetables did not live up to the standards of what he knew in France. On the other hand, grasset, partridges, and other birds were excellent. Sea turtle could be perfectly cooked by local cooks. Redfish, eel, and sea perch were greatly prized. The pecan, unknown to him in France, was better than any nut he had ever tasted. He found that the best fruit of the country was, without question, the orange. Around the good things he found, New Orleans would shape its survival diet. 
Later, it's simple meals, and later, it's haute cuisine. The food scarcities would be alleviated, he believed, by the enterprising spirit of the United States already showing itself in Louisiana in 1804 as he was preparing to leave. Lausat's accounts of his own efforts show all the attributes that would figure heavily in later descriptions by New Orleanians of their food and that would make New Orleans different from other cities. That is, he enjoyed being resourceful about cuisine, was pleased with himself that he was so, and did not mind giving his opinions on food. It is this preoccupation, this delight with food that created one of the first steps toward the development of a Creole cuisine. The American city that he envisioned grew quickly, such that by the end of the 1830s, New Orleans could be counted as one of the nation's most populous and prosperous cities. In 1840, a New Orleans visitor named Henry Whipple pronounced the city the Grand Reservoir of the Great West. Whipple, agricultural historian Wendell Stevenson later noted, was witnessing the agricultural surplus of the Mississippi Valley deposited in the city. The residents would then be excused for the pride they felt since the whole interior of the U.S. was pouring its wealth at the door. The river current floated hundreds and eventually thousands of flatboats, barges, and keelboats carrying food down to the city. On the levees could be found sugar, molasses, corn, flour, whiskey, butter, kegs of lard, puncheons of rum, sacks of wheat, tierces of flaxseed, mountains of grain sacks, including oats, wheats, and rye. These materials would be advertised in newspapers, of course, and shuttled off to other parts of the United States. They would be also sold in the city, and each morning in the markets of New Orleans and on the streets of the city, at about 4 and 5 a.m., one would witness scenes such as this one. During this early 19th century growth, New Orleans established a good number of coffee houses, small restaurants, and hotel dining rooms. The city also enlarged its public market system, something I will discuss a little later. Here you see the St. Mary's Market, which was built in 1822 in, town, in the part of town called the American Sector, that is across Canal Street, not in the French Quarter. The oldest market was the French Market, and the second was this, the St. Mary's Market. Journalists from around the country flocked to cover the colorful scenes involving shopping for food, eating food, and especially the melange of cultures found at the markets and at the tables of New Orleans. The travelers mixed with wealthy locals at a number of luxury hotels, most notably one called the St. Charles, and wrote home about lavish continental European banquet dinners. In 1840, the Frenchman-trained chef, Antoine Alciator, opened a boarding house for businessmen in the center of the old part of town, what we call today the French Quarter. Alciator's dining room remains open as Antoine's, arguably the nation's oldest continually family-run restaurant, and the brick-and-mortar progenitor of New Orleans haute cuisine. Here, he and his descendants invented famed dishes such as Oysters Rockefeller, Pompano en Papillot, and Café Brulot. 
During the same era, two Jacques opened in 1856 and a number of other smaller places that did not survive, such as this one called Madame Begay's. This pattern of expansion around markets became a familiar theme in the writings about New Orleans restaurants. Why this was so had to do with the novelty of restaurants at all and, probable, and the probable head start that New Orleans had over other cities in the beginning days of such places to stop and eat. As traveler Louis Fitzgerald noted in his book for Harper and Brothers in 1842, one such place in New Orleans was considerably full. People were lounging about in all directions, evidently waiting for a favorable opportunity to approach the bar, which was crowded with hungry disputants, before whom were displayed all the delicacies of the season and out of season, from turtle soup, wild turkey, and hot venison, down to calves' feet a la vinaigrette, pâté de foie gras, and macaroni au fromage gratté. <laughs> when the length of the table, which is about 60 feet, is taken into consideration, some idea may be formed of the numerous quantity of the dishes required to fill up every gap. And yet this is done every day, during the hours of 11 and 1 o'clock, and of the very best materials that either foreign or domestic markets can supply. In a mere 20-odd years, the Civil War had left New Orleans quite a different place from this haven of riches. But the foundations for good food had been laid, and moreover, the port in the late 19th century remained central to the overall nation and became the second largest port of embarkation in the United States. That meant continuing waves of immigrants brought their own cuisine to the mix of the city. From the 1840s, Germans arrived in the thousands, and a number among those arriving became experts in sausage making and bread baking. Literally all the bakeries today in New Orleans still surviving are from these German immigrants. Slightly later, the Sicilians began coming and familiarized other immigrant groups and older New Orleanians groups with tomato-based gravies. The Dalmatians excelled at oyster harvesting. I like this slide because it shows in the background, it's sort of dark in here and you can't see it, but there's a, a French bakery behind there, Garrick Bakery. And if you look here, then you look further down the street, it's the same scene, there's one of the Dalmatian names. And here are the um, oyster luggers at the foot of Esplanade Avenue. New Orleans also continued as a central depot for coffee and sugar, even during these relatively depressed years of the late 19th century. Here, for example, is the Sugar Exchange Building, erected in the 1880s, and a symbol of this continuing importance of New Orleans as an agricultural port. It was also during this late 19th century period that the city's residents began to seek in their cuisine a specific type of identity, one that was either Creole or the beneficiary of Creole, and at the same time, one that was American. Why might this have happened? what made them wish to incorporate the word Creole in their description of the melange of people and their food, but to employ actually much of the same language that others writing about food elsewhere in the US did. To answer this, look first at this very recent advertisement for a grocery store deli in Lakeview, one of the areas flooded heavily by the levee break in 2005. 
And if you see right in here, I chose, you see this word, beef dove with rice. I chose this image because of the word dobe, here for you now on the screen. The word dobe, as you will know, means a classic French stew or braised meat. But in New Orleans, it is usually shorthand for dobe glacé, a dish that is served at Christmas and during Carnival, the season we are in now. Dobe glacé is a highly seasoned jellied meat, somewhat like an aspic of beef or vegetables. I chose it because it is not only traditional for the season, but also cited by the WPA in 1938 as one of three dishes that were seldom found elsewhere. The other two dishes were wine, or baba cake, and pie Saint-Honoré, neither of which one sees today in the city very often. Dobe, then, even today, represents uniqueness in New Orleans food, and especially the retention of the French language for certain dishes. For now, let the image stand as evidence of this Francophone influence, the Creole image of ourselves as people who know the specific language of food, know it enough to understand this ad. The accessibility of the ad and its mention of Dobe are important for as anthropologist Sidney Mintz once noted, to have such inscriptions and understand them, a culture must have a population that eats that cuisine with sufficient frequency to consider themselves experts on it. They all believe and care that they believe that they know what it consists of, how it is made, and how it should taste. In short, a genuine cuisine has common social roots. It is the food of the community, albeit of often a very large community. For New Orleanians, this cuisine is usually defined as Creole. All along here, I've been using the word Creole as if you know what I mean. And I'm sure on some level you do know its meaning. But for New Orleanians, it is always a controversial and fluid word. In many ways, it is a legacy of the type of society that created itself under French and Spanish law, and thus deviated from the societies created in the rest of the southern United States. The word Creole is derived from Latin, criar, to create, and then the Portuguese word criolo, meaning a slave of African descent born in the New World. The French and the Spanish used the term Creole to differentiate between American and African-born slaves during the 17th and 18th century. Gradually, however, legal documents indicate that descendants of the early European colonists in Louisiana began to refer to themselves as Creoles, apparently building on the colonial-born connotation of the word. This changing definition was hastened by the arrival of so many Americans in the early 19th century. Since these newcomers were ignorant of the intricate subtleties of the social caste system of New Orleans, where free people of color had large numbers, all native New Orleanians who spoke French began to be considered Creole, regardless of ancestry. Two, then in opposition to these upstart Americans, the descendants of the oldest New Orleans families, black and white and in between, began to claim ownership of the Creole identity. Even here, a connotation of superiority, or as we say now, a pride in the local grew. And as the WPA compilers of the 1930s found, the word Creole came to mean the epitome of perfection. 
All along, there was never a precise racial composition of the group, though certainly the white Creoles tried to make one. The debate goes on today. As late as 2005 and 2006, many of you might have seen some articles in the New York Times where people were arguing if there were any Creoles left in New Orleans. The shortest addition to this public discussion that I can give right now is that it is an important argument and that the definition still has to rest upon the first definition, meaning born in the new world. In discussions of New Orleans, this means being a descendant of one of the settlers of the city, but the settlers kept changing year by year. As a group of us working on a recent application to make New Orleans a UNESCO city of gastronomy noted, the interesting thing about the uses of the word Creole in New Orleans today is that the centuries are erased and within a span of a few blocks, all the definitions of the word that have been used throughout history are in current usage and also in current dispute. In themselves, the cookbooks of New Orleans allow a glossing over of the worries over the term Creole, or in some ways an appropriation of the term, or in other ways, as I noted in beginning, the means to an appeasement between various groups of the people who settle, and especially those who kept settling the city. Cookbooks began in New Orleans as elsewhere among wealthy households, yet still within a part of the household that crossed from the wealthy home into the streets of the town, buying food, and thus also knowing food practices across caste and class lines. In their humility, cookbooks allow always appeasement of, and the uniting of the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy. The city's first written instructions on food came from France. We know, for example, that in 1769, when the estate of one Jean-Baptiste Prévost was inventoried, that his family possessed two cookbooks, Le Cuisinier Royal and Le Ménage des Champs. By the early 19th century, library donation records allow us to find another French cookbook, La Cuisinière Bourgeoise, in at least one New Orleans home. What is different about this book than those earlier two is that this was a book marketed not for a chef or the head cook in an affluent household, but for women. By the 1840s, two other French cookbooks concerned with the management of households, one specifically marketed again for women, was being sold in New Orleans. These books were called Le Trésor de Ménage and La Petite Cuisinière Habile, and they were shipped to the city in unbound pages, bound by a bookseller, and then sold with the imprint à la Nouvelle Orléans. English-speaking Americans who came in great numbers after 1804 and many other 19th century settlers in New Orleans added their own written cooking legacies to the city. Eliza Neelan, who came from Pennsylvania by way of Georgia in 1817, for example, carried with her a small book of her mother's recipes, which were a mix of German and Dutch, but dealt with the produce of the American countryside. She added recipes that she called Creole. Recipes later found in other manuscript New Orleans cookbooks suggest that New Orleanians used copies of Mary Randolph's The Virginia Housewife, Elizabeth, um, English woman Susanna Carter's cookbook, The Frugal Housewife, amended for American ingredients, and other English language cookbooks. 
Finally, library records show that at least one 19th century family owned a copy of the first French cookbook widely circulated in the United States, Louis Eustache Eudes, the French cook, 1829. When the New Orleans Public Library printed its first catalog in 1900, a number of these same early titles appear in their collection. By that time, the Public Library also held a number of books marketed for a national readership, such as books by Mrs. Parloa, Marianne Harlan, and Mrs. Lincoln of the Boston School Kitchen. However, in 1900, the New Orleans Public Library held neither of the city's own two first cookbooks. These were written in 1885, especially for visitors to the world's industrial and cotton centennial. The first, by a few months, was called the Creole Cookery Book and was written by a group called the Christian Women's Exchange. And the second was La Cuisine Creole by Lafcadio Hearn. Both provide extensive listings of recipes proclaimed as unique to New Orleans. Notice that they both bear the word Creole in their title. And if one looks closely at their authors and their comments within the book, the realization is easily formed that this, is, that this Creole is both central and muted. It is a Creole inscribed for tourists, but very subtly allowing a crossover between different New Orleanians and their groups, and so making the books appealing not only to tourists, but also to locals. The Christian Women's Exchange, the authors of the first book, was founded in New Orleans in 1881 to provide a place where needy women could sell homemade products or family heirlooms. It was almost completely the work of uptown women, which meant in 1885, women that they would call Americans, women not of French descent, though one or two of the initial group whose names appear here had married Creoles. In 1887, the exchange acquired a house in the American sector, intended not only for these sales, but also for housing a library, a lunchroom, and a rooming house for working women. Interestingly, in 1924, the exchange moved camp to the French Quarter, to a residence of a very old Creole family, the Grima House. The move itself signaled how the various parties historically at war with one another the descendants of the French and Spanish and the Americans were reunited by these women. But the cookbook had already done this by its incorporation of Creole into its title and in many of its recipes. Lafcadio Hearn was the author of the second book by a few months with this keyword Creole in its title. Hearn is best known really for his books about Japan, but he also spent a productive 10 years in New Orleans from 1877 to 1888. A journalist, he made his mark by writing a very romantic picture of the city, and his writing for national magazines helped to mold the perception of the nation on New Orleans as a colorful place with a distinct culture more akin to the Mediterranean culture and the Caribbean than to the rest of North America. Interestingly, his La Cuisine Creole was published anonymously. He didn't want to put his name to it. But it bears the subtitle, A Collection of Culinary Recipes from Leading Chefs and Noted Creole Housewives Who Have Helped Make New Orleans Famous for Its Cuisine. 
He is said to have relied upon the help of a woman named Adrienne Gasley Matas, who was a Creole and was the wife of a famous physician. Though he also spent time in the uptown household of the Americans, notably the publishers of the New Orleans States item with whom he often worked. Hearn, like the uptown ladies, was an outsider, but in an odd way, he fit more easily into Creole society. Born on the Greek island of Lefkos, the son of a Greek mother and an Anglo-Irish father, Hearn spent his school years unhappily in cold Ireland. He missed warmth, and he found that in New Orleans. Hearn had also known defeat and even hunger, and so his language was evocative of what the Creoles, black and white and in-between, felt. Now, both the Creole, the Christian ladies, and Hearn were part of what has been called the last days of European New Orleans, and they were also in a city recovering from Reconstruction. Novelist and later social commentator George Washington Cable was writing about the decline of the city and the sad plight of the Creoles of color who were losing their caste identity and forced into a racial one. All Creoles were losing their fight to maintain a Francophone culture. French was banned from the public schools during Reconstruction, never to be taught there again, or never to be taught, classes never to be taught in English until about 1980. The French Quarter was losing residents as the Creoles, who could brave intermarriage, left for the American sector. City Hall moved to, Ameri to the American sector. And so grew the need for what was called an awakening of Creole consciousness. Creole intellectuals began to found new journals and newspapers and battle uh, to keep their culture alive. This sense of difference of the lost cause of the Gallic, with Gallic overtones appealed to many people in the city. It appealed to Hearn, and it was understood by the Christian Women's Exchange members. They became part of the effort to keep alive or at least transform the meaning of Creole. The Creole cooking tradition gained another inscribed volume when in 1900 the Picayune Creole Cookbook made its first appearance. Compiled and said to be compiled anonymously, the Picayune was published in 15 different editions over the whole of the 20th century. The cookbook is still today very useful and still a favorite. The Picayune is the city's newspaper, now called the Times-Picayune, and it was founded in 1837. By the end of the 19th century, it had become the leading newspaper in the city, just as the Creoles were trying their hardest to hold on to the French-speaking journals. In 1900, the first edition of their cookbook was issued with the stated purpose of preserving to future generations the many and matchless receipts of our New Orleans cuisine to gather these up from the lips of the old Creole Negro cooks and the grand old housekeepers who still survive ere they too pass away and the Creole cookery with all its delightful combinations and possibilities will have become a lost art. The book's three-page introduction emphasized the rich mix of cultures that contributed to New Orleans cookery but noted the ravages of the Civil War and the changes in circumstances of many families. Quote, the, the Picayune in compiling this book has been animated by the laudable desire to teach the great mass of the public how to live cheaply and live well. 
The emphasis was on traditional and efficient home cooking with Creole specialties for inexperienced cooks, written to show how it is possible for every family, from the palace to the cottage, to keep a good table and at the same time an economical one. Comprehensive chapters of recipes began with Creole coffee and continued through things that are normal in cookbooks, such as soup, fish, seafood, meat, game, birds, and poultry. Additional chapters provide recipes for distinctly New Orleans cuisine, such as chapters on bouilli, Creole gumbo, Creole breads, and Louisiana rice. There was also a chapter on Lenten soups. The last chapter was how the Creole housewife in reduced circumstances manages to live economically and well. The divisions themselves within the various editions have never changed. Yet, as Ryan Fertel recently noted, the introductory text and illustrations constantly shift over time to suit changing political, social, and cultural power relationships in the city the South, and the nation. Editors of the cookbook reportedly, uh, repeatedly reordered the words and images within in order to assign and reassign authorship of these Creole recipes. The Picayune's Creole cookbook interprets the history of New Orleans and accredits dominion over the city's Creole culture. Over the years, as as Fertel's quote signals, these shifts have concerned race and gender. The race part becomes fairly obvious since one of the always unnamed cooks was portrayed like this, as a mammy. But gender was also important, of course, since she is also a woman. And the recipes are said to have been vetted by a famous male cook and the compilations obtained through conversations with chefs, mostly male, and over the years, more emphasis was given to both the African-American women in the kitchen and the white women who, alas, might find themselves in the modern world without a cook. Still, the mammy image was a constant, and she is almost always defined as Creole herself, and certainly at work in a Creole kitchen. What is most interesting about all the editions, however, is again the emphasis on Creole thrift, Thrift is the defining characteristic of what the compilers want from the Creole housewife or people who imitate her. She insists on quality, but she knows how to use her resources well, just as the early New Orleanians had to do with their reliance on the Germans and Lausat had done in 1804. I also love the Picayune for its authoritative and ethnocentric tone. If any of you have read it, they proclaim a certain privilege in being from New Orleans. About sweetbreads, for example, they write, scarcely one person in 10, if the question is put directly, can tell you what a sweetbread is. And they can scarcely be blamed for the most distinguished lexicographers from Webster down to the late compiler of the new century fail to give the correct definition. Yet every old French dictionary can define sweetbreads as the glands in the throat of any young animal, more generally, the sucking calf. The old Creole gourmets have had infinite amusement over definitions given by the American dictionary makers. And for pork chops, the Picayune is similarly pleasurable in their straightforward pronouncement. 
the Creoles will never eat a broiled pork chop. Shortly after the first two editions of the Picayune Creole Cookbook, another look at Creole cuisine appeared. This was the 1904 publication of Celestine Eustace's Cooking in Old Creole Days. It is surprising that this book is not better known or popular, but Eustace never had the moral imperative that the Picayune does, or, of course, the longevity of a corporation, or even the literary following of Lovecadio Hearn. In many ways, though, Eustace was just the type of woman that Hearn and the Christian Women's Exchange and the Picayune compilers aimed to emulate. She was overtly a Creole. Her Creole status is based on lineage, and she is also a Francophone. Her book comprises two sections, one in French and one in English. Like the other early compilers and writers, Eustace believed that the Creoles white and black and in between, had shaped a remarkable cuisine. And she is eager to tell something of that history and add these recipes to the national cuisine. She writes that gumbo, which could be made with game, chicken, turkey, veal, leftovers, in a pinch, even an owl, was reserved by the Indians for their feast days, while the Creoles ate it at small gatherings following a dance. She also delights in food, as the Picayune writers do but places emphasis on the food itself and not on the superiority of the Creoles, noting, for example, that the tomato, like no other food item, is capable of appearing in so great a variety of palatable and satisfying dishes. She offers several jambalaya recipes varying in complexity, as well as recipes for dobe glace and New Orleans veal with oysters. Hints for housewives include Waters in which vegetables have been boiled can be used in cooking except for potato or cucumber water. They have been known to poison a dog. <laughs> Interestingly, she brings a few outside voices to the book, something done in the recipes in the other three books but never acknowledged. One of her outside voices is in the introduction to the English section, written by a then rather famous Philadelphia doctor. She credits some recipes to various elegant hostesses and unusual for the time to the cooks, often former slaves, to which she gives names, something not done in the other New Orleans early cookbooks. Josephine Niso, who worked for her brother, who was once Confederate ambassador to France for 40 years, is one of those named. Niso's oyster and peanut soup is an interesting souvenir of African influence. The book also contains a menu in French and in English of a small Creole dinner for the delegates of, of the New Orleans Press Club in 1899. Like Hearn, Eustace wanted to give more to her cookbook than just food, so she inserted these sorts of musical notations that she explained she learned from the Creole cooks. In this, she brings the French-speaking Africans who descended as Creoles into the circle of the knowledgeable folks who make New Orleans cuisine. She also inserts drawings of the market people, such as this man selling mustard and this woman selling calas. Now, at the same time that these four critical cookbooks were being published to make known the old ways, much was changing that is not discussed in the books, but is the root of their nostalgia. 
As I mentioned, New Orleans by this time was not the same city of the 1840s to which the great agricultural Midwest and South had poured their agricultural products. There were other ways of moving products by then than the barges of the Mississippi and other cities gaining ascendancies as depots. Whereas the cookbooks talk of the disappearance of African-American mammies and the Creole lifestyle, what was also changing had to do with the advent of electricity, different means of food procurement from different ethnic groups, and the shaping of French cuisine worldwide. A new New Orleans cuisine was being shaped, one that was both unique and part of a discourse recognized by larger audiences. These cookbooks subtly show how this would happen, but it's useful to look at the underlying factors that made it so. By the late 1880s, Westinghouse and Edison had begun wiring the city. Local ice houses then could create blocks of ice, which rested in the bottom of ice boxes. And as refrigeration became the norm for all small stores, all sorts of government regulation of markets, which had been the government controlled since the 1760s, began to unravel. Why this bit of progress upset the view that New Orleanians had of their food and its centrality to their way of life has to do with the enormous appeal of the markets over a long period of time. The city's market system, one would argue, was also a reflection of the evolving New Orleans population and by extension of the word Creole and the meaning of Creole cuisine. As I noted earlier, the market's foundations under the Spanish regime came at a time when the city was never sure that starvation was far away. In 1779, the Spanish authorities built the first central public market, a wooden structure that was much like the one I showed you for the St. Mary Market, to shade butchers and their meat. Other public markets soon followed to serve a population that grew steadily from 3,000 in 1760 to 8,500 by 1808. St. Mary's Market, which we saw, was built in 1822, the first in the American sector. By the 1880s, there were 20 more significant public markets. Some catered to specific groups. The Irish claimed St. Mary's, the Germans, the Poitras Market, the Creoles of color, the Treme Market. Who governed the market was always a source of contention. Why? Because the markets had exclusive sale of all perishables. In both the Spanish and the American city, the markets created a huge source of income. In 1888, they generated $200,000 for the city. Only taxes on property yielded more money. The market also employed many people, especially immigrants, and thus contributed to the whole economy. The markets required police, cleaning and repairs, and vendors and farmers. They required inspectors. New Orleans employed the old European system known as the farmer of the market. The farmer was the prime contractor who then leased the entire facility and paid the city. Some of the appeal of the markets was architectural. In the largest of the market, the one today we call the French market, a series of buildings were built. The first market designed in the Americans was called a palace, much more elaborate than the warehouses of the Spanish had been. But it was destroyed after only a year of its existence by the hurricane of 1812. The next building constructed in 1813 still stands today and looks like this. 
Until really quite recently, this was known as the meat market, until the beginning of the 20th century. The four other buildings in this, the largest market, were the bazaar, where dry goods were sold, the fruit and flower market, where poultry could also be sold, the vegetable market, and the fish market. During market hours, which were 5 a.m. to noon and 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. in the summer, the streets between the markets also had the stands of vendors selling such things as filet and pralines. The same was true for other markets in other parts of the city. They were smaller, of course, with few exceptions, but often, like this one, they straddled two streets. Besides the visual appeal of the markets and the market people, residents and tourists also liked them for the part they played in showing off produce itself and the view of the city as one where people spoke many different languages. In 1821, at the French market, series of interlocking structures, artist John, John James Audubon wrote that he could buy for his work six kinds of wild waterfowl, nine kinds of wild birds, and many squirrels. Traveler Charles Lyell, around the same period, noted the people and their differences from him and other North Americans of European descent. Negroes, mulattoes, and quadroons, some talking French, other a patois of Spanish and French, others a mixture of French and English, he wrote. In 1845, the travel writer Benjamin Norman noted the richness of the Sunday markets, where whole families turned out, as opposed only to the cooks during the weekday. As he noted, at the break of the day, the gathering commences, youth and age, beauty and the not-so-beautiful. All colors, nations, and tongues are commingled in one heterogeneous mass of delightful confusion. And he must be a stranger indeed who elbows his way through the dense crowd without hearing the welcome music of his own native language. Some 90 years later, travelers still found more than enough to write about and again came to define the city, sometimes the whole of the state around what they saw in the markets. As Alice Toklas, cook and companion to Gertrude Stein, wrote in her 1930 visit to the city, in New Orleans, I walked down to the market every morning, realizing that I would live, have to live in a dream of it for the rest of my life. How, with such perfection, variety, and abundance of material, could one not be inspired to creative cooking? Also from the early 1930s, a traveler named John Peel Bishop described even more descriptive enthusiasm for the Sicilian domination of the fruit and vegetable market, where, he wrote, a huge man daintily binds bunches for soup while his wife quarters cabbages ties small bundles of thyme, parsley, and green onions, small hot peppers, and sweet pimentos to season gumbos. Another Italian with white mustache, smiling fiercely from a tan face, offers jars of filet powder, unground allspice, pickled onions and vinegar. Carts and trucks flank the sidewalk. One walks through crates of curled parsley, scallions piled with ice, wagon loads of spinach with tender mauve stalks, misbank baskets of crisp kale, sacks of white onion and oyster white fish nest, pink onions and sacks of old rose, piles of eggplant with purple reflections, white garlic and sea green leeks with shredded roots, gray white like witch's hair. 
Bishop then conflated the scenes in the market with the very essence of what the city offered him, noting that in looking up at the corner in the bright sunlight, I saw a sign, Poor Boys, Grand Dame Coffee, J. Battistella. At that moment, it seemed to me to resume much of Louisiana, which was a neon sign unlit in the sun and ending in an Italian name. Such public markets so present in other American cities were more numerous in New Orleans, and they lasted longer in New Orleans than in other cities. The vendors in the markets attained a certain status. The farmer of the market was wealthy man, and the butchers came next in the social hierarchy, especially because their work involved close ties to various restaurants. All food, especially the meat of the market, had to be used up in the day, hence the growth of restaurants. The butchers also formed a network by marriage and kin that made their exclusiveness even more pronounced. And here enters the French imperialism or on cuisine, and New Orleans, a particular French link. Consider, however, that by the late 19th century and certainly the early 20th century, the butchers were both at the center of Creole culture and outside it. Their outsider status is not often mentioned. For the most part, the butchers of the market of the 19th and early 20th centuries were not from the old Creole families. Rather, they were from a Francophone group the American New Orleanians called the Foreign French. Many of them in the French market came from the same region in France, from Gascony. These Gascon butchers had come to the city in waves during the 19th century after the French Revolution, Waterloo, the July Monarchy, and the 1849 Revolution. They were involved in a number of cultural organizations that made themselves stronger. They had a benevolent society. They ran the French hospital, what was called the French hospital. They also had their own French benevolent butchers association, which provided one of the strongest groups nationwide to counter the power of meat wholesalers. About the prominence of the Gascon butchers, the New Orleans Times in 1869 felt obligated to criticize what was perceived as a monopoly. There is not an American in the business, they wrote, and the number of Germans may be counted on the fingers of a single hand. Though this was not technically true, the Frenchmen did wield the most power and the most visible, as the names on these advertisements suggest. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. All French names. Now, as all this was happening, the mother country of France was successfully building its global domination of food preparations in the Grand Hotel of Europe and America. This was transported to the richness available on New Orleans' table via the good number of French-identified establishments attached to the markets and to the people who immigrated to New Orleans, not coming as Creoles at all, but perhaps becoming a new definition of Creoles. This is Galatois restaurants, and their children, after all, were born in New Orleans and today run restaurants such as this one. Here is Madame Begay, who ran a restaurant with her butcher husband, where they created an atmosphere that is still known in other parts of the U.S. In the French monopoly of gastronomy, then, New Orleans became a part of the larger diffusion of ideas and people in a singularly focused way not found in other, Europe, other U.S. cities. But what did this French monopoly mean to New Orleanians looking for thrift 
looking for ways to market their cookbooks. It meant that even if the writers were not Creole, as we know the Christian women's exchange ladies were not, and Lafcadio Hearn was not, a decision was made to make the, Creole, the word Creole both ambiguous and central to their works. Lately, Ryan Fertel is learning more about the woman whose identity was so long masked in the Picayune Creole cookbook, and his work will form an important step in understanding what the words Creole cuisine came to mean, even to Americans. In the meantime, it is safe to say that two types of culinary memory, one outside the Creole community and one within it, form different ranks to create the culinary culture still present in New Orleans, still there, more Creole than not. The Francophone world did, sur- did not survive, but it was appropriated into a Creole cuisine, hence the need to inscribe the word Creole and the world of Creoles in the first four cookbooks. All the cookbooks give recipe titles in French and English, but the Picayune book, the one that has lasted the longest as a true manual, does so for every single recipe. Let us then return to Dope to the advertisement of 2011. With apologies to vegetarians, I chose it, as I noted earlier, because it is a staple on the holiday table, and especially on the carnival one, where we are now. This is a slide of the first carnival crew, Comus, which was established in 1857 by Americans, not by Creoles, who thought of the period as one of gaiety, but not necessarily mass gaiety on the streets. The Creoles once again lost ascendancy, and eventually, as most historians say, they lost the struggle for the soul of Louisiana. But they did not lose the language of food, of dope. I will end with that, and as we do in New Orleans, with coffee. Thank you. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. The Spring 2011 series studies the history of food and culinary styles from prehistory to the present with a particular focus on Europe and the United States. This year's lectures are organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by Paul Friedman, Chester D. Tripp Professor of History. Susan Tucker spoke on March 2, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.